I'm Sherry Greco-Rikus, co-founder of Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. Welcome to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. As an investment advisor, I guide clients to reflect upon their core values as they make major life decisions. I will be interviewing real people with real stories who have embraced this approach to achieve success. I hope their stories will inspire you to maximize your return on life. Well, welcome Todd Wiener today to the Maximize Your Return on Life podcast. Now, this is very exciting for me. I've, I've known Todd for over 25 years. We met when we were three, right, Todd? No, just kidding. We've, <laughs> we've known each other for quite a while. Todd is one of the smartest people I know, and he has been such a great mentor to me and always giving me advice and probably one of the people that really encouraged me to start Rappaport Rikus Capital Management. So I just want to thank Todd initially for that. And that brings us to our podcast today. A little bit more about Todd, because you're going to hear his story in a moment. But Todd is the kind of person that gives 110% to everything. And not only does he work hard and give 110%, but he's also extremely efficient. So it's it's this rare combination of, of smart getting the job done and being efficient. And six years ago, Todd, your life changed a little bit. Was it about six years ago? That is pretty close, Sherry. It's been about six or seven years now. Yeah, so let us bring you back six years. Todd was a senior partner at a big law firm. He is an avid tennis player. He played the clarinet. He was an avid reader. He was in unbelievable shape. I think you were biking about 200 miles a week. Is that right, Todd? That's correct, Sherry. And Todd decided he would like to spend some time in Arizona. So he and his wife, uh, Paula, rented a place in Arizona. And I think it was on day four or five everything changed for Todd. And you're going to hear the story on what happened that day in Arizona. Todd was in a devastating bike accident that led to a traumatic brain injury. Today, we're going to also talk about Todd's career path, what he was doing before the accident, his long recovery that was both physical and emotional, the support he had from friends and family, and how Todd and Paula took some of the stress financially out of this accident because they were all prepared with their finances as well up to date with all their legal documents. But most importantly, you're going to hear how Todd not only survived this devastating accident, but how he's thriving. Paula and I met years ago, and then the four of us have become great friends and Both our husbands are from Cleveland, so we have that in common. But Todd, can you tell us a little bit about how uh, you ended up in the dream law school of Harvard that everyone tries to get there? So how did you end up in Harvard Law School? And Give us a little flavor of that. That'd be my pleasure, Sherry. It's probably not the typical story. I did grow up in a middle-class neighborhood on the east side of Cleveland and um, went to public schools and then like a lot of other people, went to a state university in Ohio, went to the University of Cincinnati. And I was fortunate enough that Cincinnati had an interesting program 
for honor students that put us in fairly small classes with full professors when we were freshmen, which was a little different from what you typically have in a very large class in a large state university. And I enjoyed that and started to think about what I wanted to study and what I wanted to do after college. And I decided probably law school um, for some simple reasons. Um, One, my father had been a lawyer, was a lawyer, and seemed to enjoy his career. And I realized that if I was going to go to law school, I could study whatever interested me in college. And I did that. And I became a history major and enjoyed college there. When I was about three years through school, the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences there asked me if I could please apply to Harvard Law School and a few other law schools. He wanted to get someone in, which is not a typical route from a state university in the Midwest. And I told him, okay, I don't know why they would necessarily accept me. I didn't go to a wonderful prep school. I didn't go to a a well-known private university in the Ivy League or the West Coast, and uh, but I would do it. And he pointed out that he thought because of the grades in the wide range of topics I had studied and the LSAT score and the fact that I also had done my academic work while I had a full-time job at, at Cincinnati, I was in charge of a department of the university library system where I was in charge of a program for um, students that had various um, special needs who were basically handicapped, usually blind. And I had worked on that job full-time while taking my courses. And he thought that would appeal to schools like Harvard. And so I applied. And Harvard was um, very quick to respond and say, yes, you can attend here. And that was a surprise to me, like I think it would be to most people. And I started to hear from the other schools I applied to also, and most had offered to um, have me attend for free. Harvard didn't offer that and would be expensive, but I was lucky enough to have my father, who usually was very quiet and didn't give any advice unless you asked him for it. And I did. And um, he said, even though his alma mater back in Cleveland Case Western Reserve would have let me go for free. And he said, go to Harvard. I think it'll open up doors and opportunities that you might like, and you'll meet people that will be interesting to know throughout your life. And so I took his advice and I did. And that's how I ended up there, Sherry. Oh, great. Uh, any famous people in your class? Yeah, there were several. <laughs> I was lucky enough in my section, which is the group of people in, in your first class that all attended the same classes. There was a student who I ended up becoming friends with, and we both ended up teaching other Harvard Law students when we were second and third year. And that was a woman named Elena Kagan, who became a U.S. Supreme Court Justice after being the Solicitor General of the United States. Wow. Yeah. So I I knew there had to be a few in your class. So then uh, after you graduated Harvard, what was your career path? Where did you end up going after that? I think fairly typical coming out of there. I decided I would practice law. And I looked at possible jobs in major cities. And uh, one of those cities was Chicago. And I tried Chicago in a law firm for the summertime between um, classes. I enjoyed that and um, took a job offer in Chicago with a large law firm and moved here and took the bar exam and passed and started to practice. And what was your specialty? Well, um, interesting. Things change. 
I came out of law school and into the law firm, assuming I was going to be a typical corporate lawyer in a large law firm specializing in working on mergers and acquisitions and other deals. And I started doing that. And also, that was 1986. And the world of environmental law was suddenly growing. An important federal statute had been amended. And the United States Environmental Protection Agency was busy. And that work existed. And the law firm I was in did not have someone in that area. And a, a couple of the lawyers started to track work in that area and asked me if I'd work on it. And I figured I'll try it. Everything's new to me anyway. And I did. And I liked environmental law better than the corporate work. And I figured, well, it's going to be a lot of reading, a lot of talking to people and know what they're doing. But it seems fun. And it's all new to me. And that's what I did. Yeah. So sometimes, you know, we all think we're going to start one way and life moves another. Was there any mentors or anyone in your life that really kind of helped you to get to this environmental law or just happened that way? There are a lot of people, of course, um, generally people in the firm who are very cooperative and people who were friends around town became friends with people in the various agencies and they were very helpful answering questions of mine as I was practicing. And I should add probably a woman I was dating who became my wife, Paula Jacoby, was a few years older than I am and was a more experienced lawyer and she was very supportive and it was great having someone to talk through legal issues who you did not work with to talk through things. And that was helpful too. Paula's a, a pretty tough lawyer in her own right. She's got a, a big practice. And I, I know that just because we're great friends. So now I'm going to kind of bring you back to six years ago, because I think I was one of Paula's first calls. I, I remember I was at work and I got a call. I could barely understand her. She was very upset, very emotional. And she kept saying, Todd was in an accident. Todd was in an accident. And, you know, you've surrounded yourself with a network of people. One of your friends, Mark, got her to the airport, got a cab for her, got her to the hospital. But you were in Tucson. Paula was in Chicago at the time. She flew out. And I know you don't remember a lot of that day, but can you kind of bring us back the morning you were having coffee, you were getting on your bike, and then as much as you can remember, what happened? Sure. I had become an, um, a very active bicyclist as a hobby in previous years. Uh, I probably figured out that I had biked 250,000 miles in the 25 years leading up to that day, all those miles without a serious accident ever. The previous January and that January, we had rented a home in Tucson, so there'd be a nice place to go work from when the weather's lousy in Chicago, when it, the weather's not very good to a hobby like bicycling. And I had found a group of people that I biked with about five days a week down there. And that day, I um, had one of those rides with them in an area in the Catalina foothills on the north end of Tucson, where we had a lot of fun um, in other weeks going up and down very steep hills and getting our exercise that way. And that day, the part that I can't remember other than what I've been told by people who were there with me, I had um, on one of the descents at high speed, had lost control of the bike on a rough road and uh, flew off the bike. And even though I had a helmet on, had experience on the bike, it was obviously a very bad moment where I crashed 
horribly at high speed. And amongst the many injuries was hitting my head on the ground, which caused a lot of damage to the front of the brain, the side of the brain, as well as the skull. Fortunately, a couple of other bicyclists who were there were in the medical business. They were absolutely needed for me to be talking to Sherry today because, amongst other things, I was not breathing at all. And I would have passed away that morning right there. They got me breathing. They got me to the hospital. They were also able to call Paul, even though they didn't know her. I had on one of those bracelets that people wear for safe reasons that lists a contact name and a phone number, and that listed Paula. It was wonderful they were able to reach Paula, who was back in Chicago that day, but she was in court that day. And she actually got the call as she was leaving the federal courthouse in Chicago, where she had had a hearing that morning in a case, and got a call that you would never want to have about your spouse or anyone in your life. And that obviously um, caused a very difficult day and a difficult trip for um, Paula to get down to Tucson. She had been told, um, come down, don't know if your husband's going to live. And that's all she knew at that point. And um, she made it down that night. I can't remember. And also, um, Paula knew she would need some help dealing with everything. She called you, Sherry, as well as another friend, her friend, Linda Honnold as well. And you ladies came down and others were able to help out to um, let people try to figure out what needed to happen with me and uh, basically enabled Paul to start being a real quarterback of the medical care and all other types of care for me. I have chills reliving the story because I remember it so well. But just a couple of things you mentioned just for our listeners. One is always wear a helmet. I think that saved you. And the fact that you had the medical information on a bracelet, I think is important, especially for people that are active. So Linda and I got on the next flight we could. We came down and we didn't know what to expect either. And we walked in the room and Todd was in the bed and didn't even know who he was, didn't know who we were. He had broken ribs. He was in a lot of pain. Fortunately, you don't remember that either. But that was at the very, very beginning. And uh, he did mention this. I mean, Paula is such a strong person and she is one that never takes no for an answer, for better or for worse. So she was really, really uh, Todd's advocate. So I'd like to kind of walk you through this. I mean, Todd is, is in a bed in the hospital, doesn't know where he is, who we are, who he is. These are days after the accident. Fortunately, a few weeks later, it was a little better, but Paula realized that you needed more care than you could get at the hospital and you needed a rehab. So what happened next, Todd? Do you remember? Well, I remembered after the fact. Because we've told you. One, you've told me, and especially this period, I have no real memory of, but looking back on it, I think it's an important part of the story for others as well as for me. Generally, medical insurance will um, cover things that are important for you getting to live and being able to walk around maybe. Um, Insurance doesn't necessarily cover whatever it might take for this type of injury to try to give you a chance to recovering to the condition you were before, um, particularly with your mind. Paula worked through what the um, best options were with help of others. And she then sought to have me move from a hospital in Arizona 
to a very good rehabilitation center in Chicago, which these days is called the Shirley Ryan right. Ability Lab. Then it was called the Rehabilitation Institute of Chicago Center. And they were willing to accept me as a patient. The problem back then is the insurance company was refusing to pay for it. Paula, with the help of the other um, lawyers in her law firm, Paula's a lawyer also, were able to work their way up the medical insurance company with what was probably some necessary clout to be able to say, our entire law firm is insured by you folks. You want us to continue to be. You'll do the right thing here. We're able to do that. Paula was also very good at figuring out how to get me there and the cost that would be. And you and Linda were helpful with that. I'm very expensive to get a medical jet to take someone safely from place to another in this condition. And um, Paul was able to negotiate a deal with them where some money down with the, with that company pursuing the insurance company themselves later and able to work out a contract with them. And I think you and um, Linda and Paula had to cobble together the way ordinary people would have to put together credit limits on credit cards and to put a person on an airplane with doctors and nurses into a place where they could get care. Yeah, we had less than probably six hours to get that money together to get you on that private plane. But the three of us got the job done, Todd. You were on that private plane the next day. And again, this is all told to me after the fact, and it all rings very true. My first memory is maybe a couple of weeks later at RIC in Chicago and hearing the story on why I was there and why I was there. That was, was a very good idea by Paula and the other people who helped her work through options to have a place with the right type of professional people to start the process of trying to see what you can do to get your mind back the way it was at a time when I really couldn't walk well and couldn't talk well and couldn't follow conversations and had no short-term memory at all. And getting from that to a level that was a level people want to be at was a process and it was a good place to start that process. Yeah. And I, I think even the doctors had said, because you were physically fit, you were intellectually, you know, had the capacity, your recovery was a lot better than they expected. But I remember one funny story. I was at RIC and you thought you were better and you wanted to leave and you somehow got your phone and was able to push. You saw the Uber icon and you tried to get an Uber to come pick you up to get you out. But but you didn't know you had these bands and there were doors and you couldn't get out. So you were in RIC at the time for about three weeks or so, three or four weeks? A little longer. I, I think it was closer to a total of two months. I can remember. Two months. I can remember the second month there. Yeah. And, and that, you know, and then it was time for phase two. And again, Paula being proactive and, and you had started to get, you know, your memory back a little bit. You looked at all the options and you ended up going where, Todd? It was a place that had been recommended to Paula by one of the doctors at RIC, Learning Services Center. And they had several locations. And the one that seemed appropriate was out near Denver, Colorado. And the woman who ran that actually flew out to meet Paula and to um, give her thought that she thought they'd be able to help us out quite a bit. And Paula, I'm um, agreed that that would be a wise thing to do. 
Again, these are the kind of things that are not typically covered with insurance and weren't here. One, it was Paul's decision, I think correctly, that that was a place I should go. And these things are expensive, as you'd expect. You have a lot of professionals who help you, a place to live while that's going on, a place that's looking over you. And Paula was able, we were able to financially do that, which is fortunate. Most people who are able to turn to someone like learning services are usually people who get injured like this in a work accident because um, workers' comp insurance will cover taking care of someone who's hurt at work. And I met a lot of people like that when I was there. But otherwise, people who were able to be there and get the benefit of the right people to work with you um, was something we were able to do, which was great. And Paula, as the quarterback still, knew that I really cared about staying in touch with the people from my life before I was injured. And I was fortunate enough, really, through Paula's effort. They have almost an army of people fly out and visit me. I think I had about 12 different people who visited me out there in the two months that I was out there. Others, of course, who called me up and would communicate with me on the computer and so on. And that's very important on the psychological side, as well as just the interactions necessary to work on your mind when you're in that kind of condition. And that worked well in Denver. And also, I remember we made meals for Paula, and you have been so good to the community that the community was giving back to you. And I I think your friends helped immensely through this whole process. But I just want to take a break because I can't stop myself with my financial advisor hat. There's a couple of things you said. One is, you know, we do encourage our clients to always have that emergency fund because you never know in emergencies are going to happen. And I think it's because you and Paul have always lived within your means that you did have this emergency fund and that did open opportunities for you when you absolutely needed it. There was a lot of legal things that Paula had to deal with, like financial powers of attorney and making sure all that was set up. I know we helped her with that and she got that done. So, you know, there's the physical, emotional, but there's also the financial side and when you live your life and live within your means, you know, you're usually able to do that. So how long were you in Denver for a couple months? I can't remember. I think it was two months. And one of the things that I was typical of people with an injury like this who want to get back to where they're used to living, even though it's important to be getting the care out there, it was two months. And I remember trying to, for myself, figure out when am I in good enough shape to come home and then sitting down like a lawyer or, or a lawyer who was being treated for the type of injury that I had then sitting down with the people who ran that place to say, I think in another two or three weeks, I will be ready to come home. Here's why. And making my case out and working them through it and having them set up for me to make a presentation in a couple of weeks to the whole team of people who worked at that place, which was also very good in the rehab process. By the time I was ready to get out of there and come back here was probably about two months. So we're talking about four months of recovery, but I know it didn't stop there. I know you continued with your recovery on an outpatient basis, because again, Todd doesn't do anything halfway. And you know, you did a lot of extra work, a lot of extra exercises and recovery, even after those four months. Is that correct? Yes. Back there and here, the RIC place that I had been with for the first two months also had daytime process. 
out in the suburbs where I met about three or four days a week out there for a few hours with other hearing specialists, memory specialists, and so on, and continued the process back part-time. And that was very, very helpful. And I saw the x-rays, you know, Paula showed me when it first happened. And it is a miracle, Todd, the fact that where you are and where you were, the hard work that you put in, the tenacity of family, your friends, it's unbelievable. It's an amazing story. It was, you know, four months, but you were told some pretty bad news towards the end of it that you could no longer cycle. That was something they didn't want you to do because they didn't want to hit your head again. And I know that was probably devastating for you. How did you handle it? And what are some of the things you do now after the accident? That is true, Sherry. I was told it would be a very bad idea to cycle because one, I was fortunate enough to have recovered from this injury where when you look at the statistics on that, I'd say my odds of getting back to this level, uh, a lot of work, a lot of skill, a lot of luck. It's maybe one in 10,000 people. And they said, if you hit your head again, it'll be about a 0% chance of recovering from that. So if you want to cycle, that's a risk. That was an easy decision, although emotionally difficult because it was a favorite activity. And I had a lot of friends that I spent a lot of time cycling with. Yeah, you got my husband to cycle. (laughs) That is correct. (laughs) That is correct. And a very good cyclist at that. And then he got people to cycle by the transitive property. You probably had 50 people cycling because you cycled. And it's part of self-identity. I mean, I was the founder of the largest cycling racing club in Chicago, a group named in a silly way off of the street I live on called Team Judson. We had about 200 people, very well known, had had wonderful coverage in publications like Chicago Magazine, where when they wanted to write about cycling in Chicago, it was about us. And it was basically a lot of interview excerpts with me. And even if that's not important, ultimately, it's part of your self-image that that's part of your life. And I had to give that up. There are a lot of other things too. I had also been an active runner. I had raced um, all sorts of races, including marathons, and got back into that. And I had been involved in music especially in my younger years, um, even as a lawyer, classical music. And I decided I've got some activity to work on those activities. And there are also some things I think I want to do in my community that I haven't done while I was working. So I made choices on the activities. Don't bike. So you're not working now, right? Correct, Todd? I'm not working as a lawyer. (laughs) So why don't you talk a little bit about, I know your running has just been unbelievable. Since Todd couldn't cycle, he took up running and it's pretty amazing some of the statistics that he could share with you. And then also some of the community work that you do as well. Yeah. With regard to the activities, running was a good thing to get back into for me for the physical reasons, just as well as the social reasons. There, it was a matter of one of the last um, parts of the injury, which made it very hard, was a horrible type of vertigo, which is not unusual for that injury, where every step you take, the whole earth seems to move up and down. And that's a nightmare. And I just wanted to figure out if that would go away and keep trying. And eventually did. And I enjoyed the process of a social type of exercise like cycling, which running is. And got involved with that and gotten back into that. And that's gone great. I enjoy it. 
So Ted, uh, let's tell our listeners, what time do you get up in the morning to start running? Well, it depends, <laughs> Sherry, it depends on, the, depends on the day. But if you're going to run with people who are younger, like I often do, it's pretty early. A couple days a week, I run with a group that meets at 5.30 in the morning, another day, 6 in the morning. Usually I like to get out and run a little at first. So usually I'm up by about 3.30 or 4 in the morning and I'm outside before 5 a.m. Yeah, we went to visit Todd and uh, my husband couldn't believe it. So he got up at 3.30 just to see what the routine was in Arizona that Todd was doing. And he went back to sleep around 4.30, but Todd was up and out. So as I said, Todd does think 110%. So we've got just a few more moments here. I want you quickly to talk about what you're doing for the community now. Sure, Sherry. A few things. One, um, one of the things I got involved in early is when I was recovering, I said, oh my gosh, I've been downtown working all these years. I haven't been doing things in my own community. I'd like to get involved and make sure that things are as good as they can be around where I'm lucky enough to live. And that's in Evanston. And there is a wonderful community foundation here called Evanston Community Foundation. And I talked to them and then they asked me to be on the board of directors there. And I've done that. And I've been doing that for about almost six years now. And I'm in charge of fundraising, philanthropy engagement for them. And the work we do for other not-for-profits and people around Evanston is something that I really enjoy doing. I also serve on the board of directors of the Evanston Symphony Orchestra, which is a wonderful asset. People care about music. Music's important in people's life. Serve on that. And that's of interest to me because I'm a musician as well. And I've enjoyed doing that. I also gotten a little bit involved with my own synagogue. Not really a little. You got a lot involved, Todd. <laughs> <That's, Okay. laughs> I, um, I, I feel almost like I'm a novice trying to figure this stuff out as I'm doing it and not mess it up at all. But they are also um, help manage the, the money and the endowment at the synagogue because long term seems to matter looking forward. When you have this type of venture, you think one of the things could have, could have happened and could happen is you could be gone tomorrow. You never know what's going to happen even the next day. And that mattered to me. And I figure I want to do the things that'll be fine when I'm not around. And so caring about things like plan giving and daily fundraising for organizations that do good for others has been important. And then over time, you start to do more as you do it. I also now gotten back into an activity that also I think is good to the world. I play in a very good orchestra down in Arizona where we still go down called the Southern Arizona Symphony Orchestra. And there I also serve on their board of directors for that orchestra, which is great for Southern Arizona. So I do that too. One of the things you think about, which I think is really a lesson to me from sharing, you sort of look around what really is important that you learn from other people. And one of the things as I looked around after this injury is I thought, well, I I was lucky and and pretty good to make sure that we had taken care of ourselves financially so that we would have what we need for me to have these options coming out of this injury and not having to go back to work and doing these other things that I basically do for free was um, besides doing all the things I did before, like invest in publicly traded companies, equity and fixed income side, also looked around at my friends who are talented and successful and figure out you have these assets, these resources around you. Make sure to see if those make sense for you too. But prudently, your core money is globally invested in index funds and things like that. 
Um, as, <laughs> as textbook and probably smartly, nationally, internationally, typical allocations that people yeah. do to be safe and protect yourself against mistakes. Yeah, so you're you're fortunate. I kind of call it the star and satellite. You know, the main piece is publicly traded, but then you're able to invest in some satellite investments. So that's great. Yes. I wanted to just end with any advice you would give to someone who's had a life-changing experience. Because I look at you and I, I kind of have this theme, not only are you surviving, but you're thriving. And sometimes when people do have a life-changing experience, they don't thrive. You know, they kind of roll up and, and kind of feel sorry for themselves and don't continue. So what advice would you give as we end this podcast here, Todd? Two parts to my advice. First part is think about what you want to do. That would be a good use of your time for yourself and to benefit others who matter to you, family, extended family, people in, in your community, friends, and so on. Figure what you want to do with your time. The second thing is, please, while you have the luxury of the time to think about what will I do when I'm in that situation, put yourself in a position where you have options to do what you want. Obviously, if you have to go back to work 12 hours a day and do that, you just have to, to survive financially, that strongly limits your options on what you're going to do. But if you can put yourself in a position where you can think through your options and then proceed with where you think your time is best used, I think that's an important thing. And I think I was fortunate that that was available to me when this happened. Yeah. So bottom line, you you lived your life so that when an emergency happened, you were able to thrive. And it, it comes down to something I talk about a lot. It's your values. What's most important to you? What's most important to your family? And I think you've always lived your values, Todd. And I think that those values are coming through after the accident. Your values were coming through before the accident. But I, I just think you're an inspiration of hard work and having a partner like Paula to help you get through this and surrounding by friends to really get through this accident and many, many more years, we're going to be able to celebrate together and enjoy life. So thank you, Todd, for coming on the podcast. Todd's a great example of someone who maximizes his return on life. And if you'd like to maximize your return on life and learn more about it, please feel free to go to our website, rrcapital.com, Rappaport Rikus Capital Management, or my own website at sherrygrecorikus.com. Thanks. Bye-bye.